very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And by the way, I know some of you do not like PayPal. I understand. Some of you like it, some of you don't. So for that reason, we have another vendor that we're using for collection of payments. This one is called Stripe. All you have to do is just go to our website and click on subscribe. You'll see the PayPal option, which is still up available to everyone, but also the new Stripe option for you. I know a lot of people have contacted us for years and we haven't been able to find one that we trust in addition to PayPal uh, because PayPal has a worldwide reach. Some of the other ones did not accept payments from certain countries, but I believe Stripe does also international payments. So take a look. If you haven't subscribed because of the PayPal issue, I hope that you can do so now. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, want to write to me, or simply have feedback, I always love to hear from you. Click on the contact button of our website. According to tonight's guest, the dark horse of the New World Order is not communism, socialism, or even fascism. It is technocracy. Tonight's guest will connect the dots of modern globalization in a way that has never been seen before, so that you can clearly understand the globalization plan, its perpetrators, and its intended endgame. In the heat of the Great Depression during the 1930s, prominent scientists and engineers proposed a utopian energy-based economic system called technocracy that would be run by those same scientists and engineers instead of elected politicians. Although this radical movement lost momentum by 1940, it regained status when it was conceptually adopted by the elitist Trilateral Commission in 1973 to become the so-called New International Economic Order. In the ensuing 41 years, the modern expression of technocracy and the new international economic order is clearly seen in global programs such as Agenda 21, Sustainable Development, Green Economy, Councils of Governments, Smart Growth, Smart Grid, Total Awareness Surveillance Initiatives, and more. Tonight's guest contends that the only logical outcome of technocracy is scientific dictatorship as already seen in dystopian literature, such as Brave New World by Aldous Huxley in 1984 by George Orwell. 
both of whom looked straight into the face of technocracy when it was still in its infancy. Tonight we challenge you to new levels of insight and understanding into the clear and present danger of technocracy and how Americans might be able to reject it once again. Tonight's special guest is Patrick Wood, an author and lecturer who has studied elite globalization policies since the late 1970s, when he partnered with the late Anthony C. Sutton to co-author Trilaterals Over Washington, Volumes 1 and 2. He remains a leading expert on the elitist Trilateral Commission, their policies and achievements in creating their self-proclaimed new international economic order. An economist by education, a financial analyst and writer by profession, and an American constitutionalist by choice. And his website is technocracy.news, and he joins us directly from Mesa, Arizona, not too far away from me. Hello, Mr. Wood, and welcome to Veritas. Thanks for being with us today. Well, great. I'm looking forward to the program today, Mel. My pleasure. May I call you Patrick? Absolutely. Well, this is a great, great topic that I've been wanting to discuss for a very long time. Let's begin by defining the term technocracy. Wow. Well, there's uh, there's a lot to the concept, uh, as you know. I know you have my book and stuff, and you've seen some of it. But let me read you a definition that was uh, penned by the Technocrat magazine back in 1938. And your listeners will have to appreciate right off the bat that technocracy was an actual movement back in the 1930s, quite large, actually. And um, they had chapters all over America uh, and through Canada, um, and they published magazines and stuff. So the Technocrat magazine was one of their official publications. And in 1938, this is a sample of how they define technocracy. And they said, quote, technocracy is the science of social engineering, the scientific operation of the entire social mechanism to produce and distribute goods and services to the entire population, close quote. That's what they said. If you go to the dictionary, uh, Webster's or some online dictionary, and look up technocracy, you'll find the first definition will say government by technicians. Uh, possibly it will say something like, you know, management of society by technical experts. And that is a common definition that's in use around the, ro- around the world. But technocracy with a capital T uh, that was invented or coined back in the 1930s, it's a replacement economic system based on energy distribution and consumption and run by engineers, scientists, and technicians. This is uh, a little bit otherworldly because you and I and everyone listening to this program, we know nothing but free enterprise. That's all we've ever had in our country. That's what's made our country great, by the way. But uh, we don't know any other economic system except the one we have. And yes, it has problems. But those problems aside, it is the one we have and it is the one that's made us great Uh, you know, as we are today. Um, And technocracy proposed to change all that, to throw it out. Uh, They thought it was going to die back then anyway, as during the Great Depression. And they were certain that they, the scientists and engineers, could successfully run society according to science, uh, according to their scientific method. And uh, it was a pretty wacky scheme, quite honestly. But uh, the American public rejected it by the end, mostly by the end of the 1930s. And we see a resurgence of it today, unfortunately. Um, and well, that's what we're going to talk about. So that's kind of in a nutshell what technocracy is, a replacement economic system 
based on energy distribution and consumption to be run by scientists and engineers. So what we have now are three pillars, correct me if I'm wrong, but we have capitalism, politics, and religion. Would technocracy be replacing or, or morphing these? Well, it, it would be replacing them, actually, altogether, because uh, you, the, three, uh, the three-legged stool that you mentioned here that, that our society sits upon requires uh, capitalism or free enterprise as an economic system. It requires <clears throat> some type of a moral base, uh, which in our country has been uh, the Judeo-Christian ethic based on the Bible. And the political system that we enjoy is a constitutional republic. There's a lot of dispute on that today, whether we are a constitutional republic anymore, but we'll leave that aside for sure. now. But we need all three of these to be operating at the same time in order to have a healthy society. Now, our society is breaking down on a number of fronts, for sure. But technocracy would have to change all three legs of the stool. The economic system would change. The political governance system would have to change. Uh, because they envisioned getting rid of Congress altogether. They wanted uh, Roosevelt, when he got elected, just to declare himself dictator, uh, implement technocracy, and dismiss Congress. <laughs> so there. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, well, that's easy to say, isn't it? Uh, just dismiss Congress. Well, how are you going to do that? You know, I mean, going to have guns and tanks or what? I mean, how are you going to get them out of the, uh, you know, out of the Capitol? But um, uh, as far as the moral base is concerned, uh, that third leg uh, where – uh, religion and morality and so on, you know, philosophy p played an important role in our country. Uh, the technocracy movement, kind of by definition, is atheistic. And they believe that the only um, the only source of truth in the universe is that which is discovered through science. So they don't believe there's any truth outside of science. So the end result of technocracy is scientism. In other words, the worship of science itself. And that becomes morality. That becomes the, uh, the religion, if you will, uh, the worship of science. Um, I know that sounds pretty twisted, but I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll put my right hand up and swear to it. <laughs> it's, it is twisted, but it, you know, that that's what it is. We have to look at it and accept it the way that they designed it. <laughs> when did your interest in globalism and the activities of the global elite begin? Oh, my. We're talking 1977. That's a long time ago. Um, I was a young financial analyst. Uh, actually, I was in Tucson, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> I, I worked for a brokerage company and um, got in, you know, kind of got my feet wet. And uh, I moved up to Phoenix um, not too long after that. Uh, and. I started writing a newsletter and I was doing investment advisory work for some clients and I started running across this organization called the Trilateral Commission. I did not know what it meant. I was just a young guy, you know, out of college, stupid by and large, you know. That's all you know when you're when you're the second lieutenant on patrol and all you have is a compass, the military says you're the most dangerous man on earth. <laughs> so that was me, you know, I was like uh I had a little bit of knowledge, uh, you know, college, some college and and uh I, you know, I, I looked at this stuff and I thought, man, I'm, I'm going crazy or something. I don't know what this means. But I, I ran across um, a guy down in New Orleans at a, a gold conference, actually, that I went to speak at. He was there to speak, too. And we ended up, just by chance, having breakfast together one morning. 
and we started talking. Well, it turns out the, the guy was, uh, his name was Anthony Sutton. He was a professor or just formerly a professor at, uh, um, the, um, at Stanford University at the Hoover Institution for War, Peace, and Revolution. And he was a researcher there and an author, a very esteemed author, and he'd been forced out. And uh, they basically drop-kicked him because he started uh, touching, his research started touching this trilateral commission a little bit too closely. And the president of Stanford at the time was David Packard, um, the, the Hewlett Packard, Hewlett-Packard co-founder. Yeah. And he just happened to be a member of the trilateral commission. <laughs> so... Uh, maybe Tony had a, who knows, he might have had a discussion with him or something, not realizing that, that he was a member of the Trinado Commission. But anyway, they, they uh, discovered his research track and where it was going, and they said, you're out of here. And Well, anyway, I met Sutton shortly after that. And we commiserated and talked, and he opened my eyes. He said, yeah, I've been looking at this, too, from a slightly different angle because he had an economics background. He was a professor of economics. And he said, I've been looking at this for some time now, and there's definitely a, a, a rat in the woodpile here. And we realized before we were done with breakfast that we had a huge story and that we needed to do something about it. We couldn't just sit on it and ignore it. So we committed. We shook hands. We committed to write a newsletter right there on the spot. <laughs> and that's how I started. It's kind of funny. But uh, that that's that's what it was. That was the catalyst. And we collaborated for about four years and wrote a newsletter called Trilateral Observer. Out of that, we produced two books, uh, Trilaterals Over Washington, Volumes 1 and 2. And uh, those became the definitive work on the Trilateral Commission back in those days. And to my knowledge, they still stand pretty much as the definitive work. Um, Nobody's really written a whole lot since then. But that's how I got started. And if I had not had that background and experience, uh, when I dis- if, if I were to discover technocracy at all in, a few years ago, I would not have had any understanding on how to place it in context historically. I, I, I just wouldn't know. I would not have understood what I was looking at. So it's kind of, uh, it's kind of curious how it all comes around, isn't it? Um, you know, I look back at the, these seemingly random events and – I can give more credit to divine appointment than I can anything else to, you know, kind of put this whole thing together. You know, f- funny, you, you worked in Tucson. I, I, I'm i in Tucson now, and after working for a finan- the financial industry for many years, I used to be a young financial analyst by, back in 1987. And I remember how I used to look at the Federal Reserve and we had to divide government entities between, you know, nonprofits and, and for-profit corporations. And I always found interesting how we categorized the Federal Reserve as a government entity. That always bothered me because I knew better, but we can discuss that later. When we hear the term technocracy, we may think of it as, as a new term. It sounds you know, like technology, something modern, but wasn't there a popular movement in the 1930s, as you mentioned, called technocracy? And if so, what did they accomplish back then? Well, you know, um, the, the the genesis of technocracy is kind of strange. During the 1920s, there was a lot of talk about it. And a lot of prominent scientists and engineers were having discussion groups and stuff back east. And in 1932, the movement actually congealed and descended upon Columbia University. And uh, Columbia University uh, received them with wide open arms. They thought that was, a, you know, just the greatest thing, state of the art political theory or whatever. 
And uh, technocracy was given a home in the basement of Hamilton Hall, which was the main building at Columbia back in those days. And they um, uh, were doing projects there. But it, it was discovered that one of the co-founders of technocracy, uh, Howard Scott, turned out to be a fraud. Uh, he had claimed that he had an engineering degree from somewhere. And he claimed that he was like, you know, a prestigious type of guy, you know, engineering wise, but he wasn't. It turns out he didn't even have a degree. And Columbia realized that they had been suckered, you know, like they were taken for a ride on this whole thing. And it wasn't techno it wasn't the ideology of technocracy per se, but it w it had more to do just with the fact that, that Howard Scott was just a con man and somehow he'd hitched his star to to the name technocracy. So anyway, um, Columbia University dropkicked the whole technocracy movement out of there. Uh, those engineers at Columbia that were involved with it, there were several, they just went back to their departments and they tenured eventually and retired and died. <laughs> um, but they knew better at that point, just say, hey, stay away from this, just leave it alone. Um, but in 1934, by 1934, uh, the two original co-founders, uh, Howard Scott and M. King Hubbard, uh, collaborated in, uh, on a corporation papers, and they filed incorporation in New York City in 1930, actually late, late 1933, I think. Um, and that's how the movement was started. They started it, as, they founded it as a membership organization. You had to pay dues, in other words, to belong to it, and... Uh, before the thing was done, there was over a half a million card-carrying members and dues-paying members of Technocracy, Inc. around the country and Canada. That's a pretty big movement. Um, I have a picture, an original picture that was taken of one of their big rallies uh, down over in uh, uh, the Hollywood Bowl, of all places, right? It was pretty new back in those days. But I have a picture of a big rally they had at Hollywood Bowl. And I tell you what, it was packed. There was hardly a seat open. Uh, so when they called meetings and rallies and whatever, a lot of people showed up, um, kind of, kind of, kind of like a Trump rally today, right? <laughs> <laughs> you get people lining up around the corner. Um, but technocracy had a big run during the early and mid thirties. Um, they were very popular, especially in Canada. They had lots of members in Canada as well. And uh, Howard Scott and the other leading technocrats would go around the country, the continent, talking to groups and stuff that had been set up in local cities. And it was it kind of had a chapter structure where um, I wouldn't want to say it's like Kiwanis or, you know, Rotary or something. But they had chapters in different cities and they all had different names. But the word technocracy would appear in it. And they met on a monthly basis to to talk about and argue and, and you know, do futuristic studies and stuff on technocracy. And uh, so Scott and Hubbard went around, spoke to these groups, addressed them. They had rallies. They had big uh, – I have some pictures of a, uh, a caravan that uh, went from Phoenix, Arizona, of all places, over to California, the Golden Gate Bridge. They had probably 150 automobiles and trucks and buses and stuff in their caravan. Back then, it was all a two-lane road, of course. So it was a very impressive-looking caravan, I have to say. And uh, they held a big rally uh, for technocracy up in um, San Francisco at the Golden Gate Park up there. And then they all drove back, I guess. I didn't have any pictures on the return trip. But um, 
they had a lot of activities going on. They they had cars that were painted with technocracy gray paint. They had orange hubcaps and um, a little symbol on the side, which is the Monad uh, symbol in red. And uh, you could go to General Motors and you could order a car. You say, I, I'm a technocrat. And I want to order a technocracy gray car. And they say, sure, sign here, sir. Really? And, yeah, and you could order it. They, and they painted, they had buses and they had uh, a template. Uh, a template, yeah, uh, automobile and, you know, um, campers <laughs> even. And believe it or not, they actually had an airplane, at least one airplane that I got a picture of that was a technocracy grade. It looked just like the car, but it was an airplane. <laughs> and, and I guess they must have flown around too. But um, Interesting. And, and when you think of technocracy and, and, and you define it at face value, it sounds interesting, it sounds promising, but it seems that there's something behind the scenes, which is something I want to dissect a lot. Now, whether, folks, you're listening to this interview after the election, we're recording it a few days before the presidential election, so I don't know how our world will be different after. But one thing I think our listeners can agree on, you know, if you're on the left, the right, you're apathetic, you're independent, I think we can all agree that wealth is shrinking. A record number of people are on welfare. Our political structures are dysfunctional. Regulations are suffocating the economy. Personal privacy has been shattered. Foreign policy disasters are everywhere. Racial conflicts are the highest in decades and, and, and on and on. Patrick, are all these changes a twist of fate or are they related to technocracy? I think they're very much related. Um, what people don't realize, uh, and of course, I come from an economics financial background. What people don't realize is that there are two different economic systems that are battling it out in the economic landscape for supremacy. One is uh, capitalism and free enterprise, and the other is technocracy. And <clears throat> this, everywhere these two opposing economic systems meet, it's like almost like matter and antimatter, you know, meeting theoretically. Uh, never seen matter and antimatter get together, have you? <laughs> but, you know, theoretically, they tell us, you know, black hole. If, if, they were, if they were to meet, you'd, you'd go sucking into a black hole or something. So um, there's corruption, there's decay wherever these two meet. Um, the head of climate change uh, at the United Nations uh, last year held a press conference. She's She since... Uh, terminated her post, uh, her tenure was up. But she's, she was number one at, at the UN of climate change. She said, and this is a direct quote, she said, this is the first time in the history of mankind that we're setting ourselves the task of intentionally, within a defined period of time, to change the economic development model that has been reigning for at least 150 years since the Industrial Revolution. The United Nations has declared war on free enterprise and capitalism, quite simply. And the economic system that they propose, which they call sustainable development, a synonym is green economy, uh, but the United Nations is pushing this now thanks to the efforts of the Trilateral Commission. And they're pushing it all over the world. And she just declared, I don't know if she let the, you know, let slip or if she meant to say what she said, but she said it. I watched her lips move. And uh, she declared war on capitalism and free enterprise. So, uh, the United Nations is trying to implement green economy everywhere in the, on the planet. It does not mix at all with capitalism free enterprise. It just doesn't. And so you have dislocations. You have uh, decouplings, if you will. And 
that's why I believe the world is having a major economic struggle. There's no recovery since the last uh, crash, financial uh, crash. And Americans and people around the world, not just us, are getting poorer and poorer as they march in place. You know, they have the same, maybe they have the same job. Maybe they have the same house, the same car and everything. But all of a sudden, their wealth is just dissipating. Their savings are dissipating. Uh, they're finding they can't make their budget on on the money that they take in. And it's not inflation. It's just that things are drying up everywhere. And, you know, it's it's kind of sad. But this is why this is why we see the economic malaise around the world. This stuff is it's just everywhere. It's like it's like the worst case of crabgrass your lawn ever had. When I think of technocracy, for some reason, I think of 21st century Bolshevism. Is there a link between communism, communism and technocracy? No, there's not. Not directly. Um, the Soviets made use of scientists a lot in their five-year plans um, in, in the early days of the Soviet Union especially. They esteemed scientists and engineers very highly. Um, and, of course, the Soviets did achieve a lot of things scientifically, that, uh, like things that caused the arms race in, in the, during the Cold War. They were very good uh, in many ways. But they, didn't, they never proposed um, a resource-based economic system that was to be regulated by energy. They never did. In fact, back in the 1930s, if you were to, let's say you saw a technocrat driving down the street, you know, in his technocracy gray car, right? And you, you hailed him over because you wanted to ask, you know, find out about technocracy. And you hailed him over. If you were to say to a guy, you know, <clears throat> I'm looking around at all these different philosophies that are kicking around, you know, society right now. I mean, there's, you know, uh, Benito Mussolini's got fascism started in Italy. Man, that sounds pretty cool. You've got um, communism here. Yeah. And, and if you ask that guy, say, you know. It seems to me that technocracy is a lot like communism, right? That Well, those would be fighting words to that guy. He might well get out of his car and say, you take that back. <laughs> because they hated communists with a passion. They were just rabidly anti-communist in their, in their speeches and everything else. They thought communism was just the absolute worst thing that, uh, that ever came down the pike. Well... On the other hand, there are some similarities to communism. It's undeniable. It's a, for instance, they're both totalitarian, right? That's right? like there's only one way to do things. Uh, and, and communism is according to the Communist Party, and technocracy is according to the technocrats. But uh, they viewed themselves as being different because they actually had an economic system and plan. That was their action plan. It wasn't just to... Uh, put everybody under Karl Marx or anything. It was to create this new utopia-like economic system that would, uh, you know, just completely solve all the world, world's problems. And it never did, of course. Uh, it still won't today, even though the UN is telling us it will. Um, but it was it was different in that way from from communism. Communism had a managed economy, but it was still based on a price-based economic system. You see, who is sponsoring technocracy? Who is orchestrating it? Well, originally it came back into vogue with the Trilateral Commission in the early 70s. 
um, the co-founder of the trial, well, the two co-founders were Zbigniew Brzezinski and David Rockefeller. Um, they had attended a Bilderberg meeting in 1972 and floated the idea there, trial balloon. And they all said, man, that's a great idea. Go do that. You know, we'll be right behind you. And so they came back to the U.S. and they started the Trilateral Commission in 1973. Their early literature, which Sutton and I sifted extensively, their early literature stated everywhere that their goal was, of the, of the commission, was to create a new international economic order. That's their exact phrase. It was on all their literature back then. It was like their tagline, you know, their motto or their credo or whatever, uh, to foster a new international economic order. Sutton and I didn't understand what new meant at the time, but if we had known about historic technocracy, we would have immediately put it together. Um, but they started with this mantra back then, and we knew at the time that the book, the book that Brzezinski had written that caught David Rockefeller's eye, and I think this book was the seminal thing, you know, that said, we love each other or I love you or whatever, you know, he said, you're coming with me, son, <laughs> and we're going to, and we're going to make beautiful music together. It was kind of the beauty and the beast, right? Brzezinski was a professor of political science at Columbia university at the time. Yeah. Small coincidence, right? And he had right. written a book called between two ages. The subtitle was America's role in the technotronic era. America's role in the technotronic era. Well, we read that book, analyze it, slice it, dice it. And when I discovered historic technocracy, this, and this was just a few years ago and, Professor Sutton had already passed uh, in 1992. I immediately started thinking technocracy, technocracy, technotronic, technotronic, technocracy, Brzezinski. And I thought to myself, I wonder if Brzezinski was really talking about technocracy <laughs> in his, what he called a technotronic. But technocracy was a forbidden word at Columbia University. Uh, they just didn't talk about it. So I went back and read his book again. And lo and behold, as I read through it, it was like I was reading about technocracy. <laughs> uh, and Brzezinski had picked up on this somehow, in the, I believe, maybe in the halls of uh, academia. People talk about stuff in the lunchroom, you know. Well, maybe they had smokers or something. I don't know where they drank scotch and smoked stogies. But whatever they did, they talk about stuff uh, amongst themselves. And his book that that talked about the technotronic era really was the model for technocracy for the world. And when he got together with David Rockefeller, the Trilateral Commission began to tout their new international economic order. And as I look back then, just starting about eight years ago, looking back over that 40-year period from 73 on, I began to see the Trilateral Commission members pop up at every key spot along the way that has that has brought us to the point we are today. I see them everywhere. I don't see anybody else. I see them. Uh, so I conclude that the Trilateral Commission's policy from the get-go was to establish this system of technocracy throughout the world. And uh, for, just as a for instance, once they had the idea down, they spoon-fed it to the United Nations which took it and just ran with it completely. They, they changed the marketing name from technocracy to sustainable development. 
which is a brilliant move. Uh, it really was because nobody really knew what that meant. Right. <laughs> and uh, they, they also green economy has come out more in, in recent days. But the idea of sustainable development is just pure technocracy from the 1930s. It's a resource driven economic system. That's what sustainable development is. It's decoupling resource use from economic growth, which is an oxymoron, by the way. But they insist it can't be done, that you can have economic growth even though it, it's removed, you know, your, your ability to grow is removed from the use of the resources that you need to run your businesses. It doesn't make any sense. But to them, that's the mantra. They run with it. In a quick parenthesis, when, when I think of David Rockefeller, he's 101 years old, and he recently received his seventh heart transplant. I mean, George Soros, 86 years old, Henry Kissinger, 93. These people seem to be so active, and they never get uh, chronically sick or die. It makes you worry. It worries you a little bit, doesn't it? Uh, like, what are they taking, right? Exactly. <laughs> they, they obviously know the secret to health and longevity. Now, how far in the future, Patrick, are we when, when it comes to, to the full implementation of technocracy, or are we now at the tipping point? We are at the tipping point. We're very close, uh, very close to it if we haven't achieved it already. Um, we have a global smart grid underway, for instance. Um, we have a massive monitoring system uh, in place around the world that is monitoring citizens' activities ad infinitum. Uh, you have technology itself is still growing at an exponential rate. So what happened in the last 10 years, um, as far as progress is concerned, is probably going to happen uh, in, at the same rate, at the uh, same level in the next two or three years. Um, so uh, technocracy is increasing. The capabilities of computers and stuff are increasing. The, their ability to, to uh, mine data, uh, big data from society is increasing. And, you know, these are the things that are uh, essential for technocracy to um, to actually take hold. But we're very close to it right now. Well, when you think about the data mining that's taking place with, you know, Facebook, all the, the, the different uh, Gmail, and even insurance companies are tapping into retail stores and pharmacies. If, let's say, somebody has an insurance policy and they're taking antidepressant medication and they go and they buy some liquor at the pharmacy, boom. They get a call the next day by their insurance agent. I'm sorry, Mr. Whatever, your policy has been canceled. Everything is interconnected because the more you monitor, the more you control. But we're not there yet 100%, are we? Well, here's, here's the – just talk about the technology for a second, I think. <clears throat> the government at this point has the ability to collect data uh, in quantities that you can hardly imagine. For instance – uh, every telephone call, every email that's sent, um, every financial transaction, uh, every social media post, um, all of these things are being collected and stored right now. Uh, that it's, just, it's an inconceivable amount of data that gets accumulated on a daily basis. The good news is, in the short run, is that there is no computer – available yet to analyze and run the artificial intelligence programs against all that data to make sense of it. It's just too much data. Now, if they had 10 years to run a program on it, they could, but by 10, by 10 years, it would be useless. Who needs it? 
So computer processing technology needs to catch up to the data storage and collection uh, capacity. And that's happening uh, rapidly, but it's not there yet. It's not quite there yet. It may take another two or three, four years uh, before it gets to that point. And I believe that quantum computing is probably going to be one of the most major breakthroughs that makes a difference to all this data. Um, but in any case, if you understand what I'm saying, it's kind of like a on a sliding scale, uh, you've got data collection racing ahead of processing ability. But it, one day it will catch up and it will reach critical mass, and that's when we're going to be in a heap of trouble. Absolutely. I mean, when you look back in the 80s, the type of computer power we had, I mean, I'm wearing a Casio watch now that has more power than the whole Apollo mission. So two, three years down the road, quantum computing, computing, DNA computing, transistors and so on that are mm-hmm. merged with D, with uh, with uh, uh, DNA, with plant DNA that would allow it to to do it in such a fast way that we can't even comprehend that. So this is very close. But if we're not there yet, what needs to be fully in place for it to succeed? Well, the infrastructure is being built right now all around the world. Um, you have, for instance, the smart grid. Uh, and, and you know what? I should back up and maybe read the early requirements of technocracy just just so your your listeners can understand why I'm why I'm highlighting or stressing this stuff. They wrote down in technocracy study course seven requirements. That's all, really, that needed to be in place for technocracy to work. And those seven requirements, I'm going to read the first five because those are the most pertinent. But uh, this was, of course, their book was like 250 pages long. That was the Bible of technocracy at that time. Uh, But they only highlighted seven hard requirements to make it work. And this is what this is what they said. Number one, register on a continuous 24 hour per day basis, the total net conversion of energy. Number two, quote, by means of the registration of energy converted and consumed, make possible a balanced load, close quote. Now, those first two requirements are the requirements for smart grid today. Those are the electronic meters, digital meters that communicate by Wi-Fi to the utility company that are being placed on the sides of homes and businesses all over America. This is why they're doing that. I won't go into the whole history of it, but it's happening. And this is the requirement that's being met by implementing smart grid, not only here, but all around the world. There's a global smart grid being built at the same time as our national smart grid is being built. This is a requirement of technocracy because it was all about energy. It was about controlling Energy. Okay, so I'll put that behind. Here's number three requirement. Quote, provide a continuous inventory of all production and consumption. Number four, quote, provide a specific registration of the type, kind, etc. of all goods and services where produced and where used. And number five, quote, provide specific registration of the consumption of each individual plus a record and description of the individual, close quote. Now, these last three requirements, you see the need for the monitoring system. You see the need to collect data. They're talking about a specific registration of the type and kind of all goods and services, (laughs) 
no matter where they're produced and where they're used. They're, they're talking about providing specific registration of the consumption of each individual. That means if you, you know, if you go down to the uh, drugstore and pull five bucks out of your pocket and buy a candy bar, they want to know that. Um, they may not know it because you give them cash, but if you pay with a credit card, they're going to know it. Uh, then it says, plus they, they need to have a record and description of the individual. Well, how far does that go? That could be, your, of course, your picture and your photograph. It could be your DNA, sample of your DNA. It could be biometric, bioidentical, you know, biometric uh, information like facial scan and, um, you know, fingerprints and iris scans, stuff like that. Uh, but you see that these were the core. They didn't have the technology back then, but they knew it was coming because that's why they wrote it. I think, Patrick, that, well, obviously cash is a stumbling block for them, but I think the only reason why cash is still allowed is because they have to factor in the black market, the underground economy. They can't just kill that from one day to the other, but they want to, right? They want to be able to monitor because without monitoring everybody, they can't control everybody. There is a war on cash going on right now around the world, and the global elite want to destroy cash. They want to go to a cashless system altogether. And it's unmistakable. You, for instance, you look at Larry Summers, uh, the ex-president of Harvard. He's been in and out of government a few times. Larry Summers has been writing almost one article a month for several months now about the evils of cash. <laughs> Why cash should be out? He's also a member of the was a member of the Trilateral Commission. Surprise, surprise, but, <clears throat> surprise, surprise. But you know he's been talking about getting rid of cash. Well, you know why do you need to waste your time writing about this if you're not trying to you know float the trial balloon? But they've been talking about this in Europe. There's there's some cities in Europe now that are cashless already. They said you can't spend cash in our town, even though there's still legal tender. We the the merchants have all banded together and they will not take cash. Period. You have to have plastic or you won't buy anything. Um, so it's coming. I mean, it's just clearly, you know, they're, they're taking out the, they t already have taken out all the high denomination notes. They're talking in America about get, getting rid of the $100 bill now. Oh, is that right? Uh, oh, yes, absolutely. I know I, businesses that do not take 100 or 50 because of counterfeiting. That's right. That's the, they, the Fed has put the fear of God into them, saying, don't take those bills because they might be counterfeit. Well, that's the stupidest thing that you've ever heard. Yeah. Why, if somebody's going to counterfeit money, why would they counterfeit $100 bills for Pete's they sake? They will do 20s. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I know they're going to do 20s. Right. So, but, but it has spooked businesses and banks into questioning anybody that comes in with $100 bills. Where'd you get that? What, what are you doing with all that $100 bills? And, you know, the, the banks just get they just go ballistic these days. If you if you go into your bank and let's say you have five thousand dollars and hundred dollar bills in your briefcase and you walk in and say, look, here's here's my wad. <clears throat> I want to deposit this in my account. You think it's going to be easy? No, no, not at all. No, they're going to say, where'd you get that money? And you say, well, I've, I've had it in my safe. I've been collecting this money for the last 20 years. Well, do you have proof of that? <laughs> you Believe know, well, me, I've been there. Well, when the economy crashed, <laughs> or just before, I decided to take some of the money out of the bank, and they were just telling me, you know, what happens if your house burns down, but, you know, putting the fear of God into you, right? So I put it in the safe. The economy got better, so I started putting it back in the bank. 
the questioning started again. Well, we need to ask, you know, I get phone calls every single day asking me, where did that come from? I'm like, look, look at my withdrawal receipts when I took it out. And I've heard of people trying to pay their mortgage in cash who are turned away by certain branches of their banking institutions. That's right. It's very pathetic. And people, you see, this is like the, this is the frog, like the frog sitting in a pot of boiling water, right? You don't know that you're getting boiled until you're actually cooked, and then it's too late. People don't see this coming like this. Maybe they don't deal with cash like that. I had a businessman friend of mine here in Phoenix who has uh, accounts at two different banks. He has a business account at one bank, and he has another business at another bank, right? And they're across the street from each other, oddly enough. And uh, <clears throat> one day, he had to make payroll in one company. And so he went over to because, you know, they, if you just give them a check, they, they always say, well, you, you know, we're going to hold your check for five yeah. days before you get the credit. So he went to Bank A and he talked them into giving him thirty two hundred dollars. And he went to Bank Bank B and went to deposit the money and they wouldn't they wouldn't take his money. They start giving him a third degree. Where'd you get this money? How do we know this? This is your money. Did you sell something? What did you do? And he, he ended up, I mean, he got really mad too. He said, look, I just want to make payroll for my employees. Deposit the stinking money. And they almost called the police on him. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it just, it underscores the point that, that, that the people with cash now are already on the hit list. You know, they're, they're the nuts. They're the ones with the tinfoil hats. Look out for those people because they might have a gun in their back pocket, you know, <laughs> it's like or something. I mean, and if you decide to have some cash in your in your safe, then all of a sudden you become a criminal. That's right. You just don't want to spend it. If you do, you just don't want to spend it all at once right. or, uh, you know, um, you just be very discreet about it. Uh you know, if you're going to put it back in the bank, you put it back in at, you know, small amounts or whatever, or, you know, go out and maybe use that cash to buy things. Uh, it, you know, like if you're going to uh, buy some products or something like that or a computer or something, you usually go out and pay cash somewhere for it. I remember, Patrick, when again, when the economy, uh, the last great recession or depression, as I see it, I remember when the FDIC changed its its. Uh, the limits, I believe it was 125 to 250,000. And I used to laugh and I used to think, really, people really believe that your money will be safe if all of a sudden everyone tried to take the money at the same time. How much money do we really have in circulation that can allow them to cover it? <laughs> well, I, I think about maybe, maybe one, one tenth of a percent at this right. point actually exists that can be withdrawn from the bank. The, the cash has already been largely dried up. So, you know, everybody, people worry today in the financial industry, especially people that are selling gold, because uh, they're selling gold. That's, you know, they have to have some fear factor. But the big fear has always been, ooh, there's going to be a Black Monday someday or a Black Tuesday, and the banks are going to close, and you're not going to get your money out, you know, and whatever. There's going to be a bank run. <clears throat> well, the fact of the matter is there's not going to be a bank run in the future. Um, people think there's going to be a bank run, but there's not going to be a bank run because the banks are simply going to say, you can't have cash, period. There's nothing for you to take. Now, you can transfer your credits to another bank if you want. Your digits. You, your, your, we have nothing to give you because we don't give any people, we don't give people anything anymore. We just have your digital money, numbers on a computer, that's all? That's right. 
And so the the next big the next big crisis that we have, if people like Larry Summers are successful uh, to continue to drive cash out of society, there will be no bank run. They're just going to close the bank, and they'll reopen it when they jolly well please. So obviously, the Trilateral Commission plays a big part in conceiving technocracy. Well, indeed, indeed they do, and. You know, it, people would have to read Technocracy Rising to understand the details on this, why I'm, why I'm saying this so <laughs> authoritatively, let's say. Um, it's not just that I sound authoritative, but uh, if you go back to 1987, uh, at the conclusion of the United Nations Brundtland Commission that was chaired by Gro Harlem Brundtland, a politician from Europe, um, she produced or the the uh, commission produced uh, her, is her as the head and editor and primary author of the book, a book called Our Common Future. It's still available on Amazon today, Our Common Future. The United Nations in 1992 uh, concluded that the first Earth Summit, which produced the in Rio de Janeiro, which produced the Agenda 21 document, which was the agenda for the 21st century, that that book. Uh, and that document would not have been possible without the work of Gro Harlan Brundtland and without the book, Our Common Future, because it laid out all of the particulars that would later be adopted into the Agenda 21 document. Okay, In other words, it was an express train. Uh, Brundtland finished the book in 1987, and it took just a few years to convene the first Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro. The, the United Nations set it up, and all the nations of the world came. And they all adopted and signed on to Agenda 21, which was the agenda for the 21st century. Well, Gro Harlem Brundtland, surprise, surprise, was a member of the Trilateral Commission. What else can you say? This was Trilateral Commission policy written by a Trilateral Commission member. And she fed it, spoon fed it to the United Nations through this book. It's just stunning. That was my next, que next, next question, Agenda 21. But isn't Agenda 21, the name being morphed into Agenda 2030 now? Well, the whole thing started with the concept of sustainable development. This, this was what it was all about. It was about creating this system, this economic system of sustainable development, which, again, is technocracy. That was the goal. Everything they've done since then, from Agenda 21 forward, is all about implementing sustainable development. And I don't care what they call it. They called it Agenda 21 at first. Uh, they now are building upon that with the 2030 Agenda, um, which was passed last year and signed on to by all the nations of the world. And the document, that new document said very explicitly that we're, we're building on top of all the progress that we made with Agenda 21 and yada, yada. And, uh, uh, you know, the original sustainable development goals were still incorporated into what we're doing now. We're just going further. And, you know, the United Nations is marching forward, but their big mantra is sustainable development. That's the only drum they're beating everywhere in the world. Every program is beating sustainable development drum. But it all came, it all started from one member of the Trilateral Commission creating this document And, uh, you know, now we see the hangers-on um, members of the Trilateral Commission pushing this along uh, for the United Nations. You know, they, they show up at particular spots and stuff. 
example, I should give an example of that maybe to back it up. Uh, Peter Sutherland is a European. Uh, he's born in Ireland originally, but he's a European uh, businessman, elite bucky muck, a member of the Trilateral Commission. He was uh, once upon a time the president, the first president of the World Trade Organization. He was international managing director, uh, director for Goldman Sachs for many years. Uh, he's an older guy now, but he's very influential, and he happens to be the United Nations envoy or special representative to the, the head guy for immigration policy. And since, 19, since 2006, he's been going around to all the European nation heads and telling them to open up their borders, to uh, set immigration quotas that they set for him. And to allow immigrants to come in. And then, lo and behold, all of these, you know, they get this whole invasion coming from the south now. Europe is being destabilized. Well, Peter Sutherland knows what he's doing here. He has said, he's on record as having said, that the only route to sustainable development is by creating a multicultural society. And that immigration is important for that reason. And so, you know, there's a lot of disconnects there. Don't get me wrong. There are. It, uh, what? You say what? <laughs> well, uh, this is the trilateral view. The sustainable development can only come uh, out of the ashes, if you will, of society as we know it today. And they're basically they're dismantling and destroying the fabric of Europe to do it. But on the other side of it, they see like the great phoenix rising up out of the ashes they see technocracy rising up out of this multicultural society that I think will look more like a Mad Max movie than anything else by the time they're done. But it's crazy talk, you know. To me, it's crazy talk. To them, they've got, you know, they have some master plan. I see their master plan. I can't, for the love of me, figure out exactly how they can justify this it, it, to themselves. Because what they're saying is is just not all, it's not all there. It's just a little bit off. <laughs> so they don't want different cultures. They don't want idiosyncrasies. They don't want borders. They just want one melting pot for the whole world. One big melting pot for the whole world. This I the way I look at this, it's global feudalism. That's all it is. Is there a religious aspect to technocracy? And I presume it it would be different than the current popular religions. Who would constitute the new? priesthood then well that's exactly right you know i i did a study on uh scientism uh some time ago and it's uh, it's helped me understand this whole thing the early technocrats were not religious uh at least in a biblical sense you know they didn't have any traditional religious thoughts but they were atheists in the sense that they believed that the only source of truth was science if it couldn't be proven and demonstrated by the scientific method, it wasn't true, period. So they rejected everything outside of what their science would tell them. That was very short-sighted in my, in my view. I mean, you know, try that on your wife. Uh, you know, you go home and you say, honey, I, I read an article today and scientists have proven, uh, or I should say scientists cannot prove that love is real. <laughs> Therefore, it isn't real. Therefore, I guess I, I guess I really don't love you, but we make good roommates, so let's, let's hang together. And you'd be sleeping in the doghouse for the next six months uh, if, you, That's right. if you said such if you said such a thing. But here's what scientism was: scientism was defined very succinctly by the father of technocracy, who was a, a French philosopher. From uh, he died in uh, 1825, 
His name was Henry de Saint-Simon. If you're French, it's Henri <laughs> de Saint-Simon. 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 And here's what they said. Here's what he said. He wrote, a scientist, my dear friend, is a man who foresees. It is because science provides the means to predict that it is useful. And the scientists are superior to all other men. That's the philosophy that started this. Hmm. That's I, I got trouble with that that whole statement on a number of levels. It's like last time I look, scientists put their pants on the same way we you and I do, and that they're not superior to all other men. Nor do they have a crystal ball that they can predict the future. However, Al Gore does. Al Gore is sure that these scientists have a crystal ball and they can predict the future that we're all going to die because the seas are going to rise because of global warming. And, you know, we're going to have tornadoes and earthquakes and everything else. And oh, it's going to be terrible. And they can foresee the future. They believe, you know, this is crazy. They can't foresee the future They're, you know, unless I mean, even, even if they say, well, you know, we're, we're into witchcraft or we're into shamanism or whatever. we we got crystal ball. We can figure this out. I said, get out of here. You know, you idiot. You, you, you can't do anything. But these people believe this, and this this is the heartbeat of scientism, and it does have a priesthood. It is a religion. It's not a scientific proposition at all. It's a religious proposition. And both uh, uh, St. Simon and his uh, chief disciple, which is August Comte, they wrote openly that uh, a priesthood was necessary. They, they called it a priesthood of scientists and engineers to administer and administrate science upon society. And it was a religion that worshiped science, basically, and the scientific method, exclusive of all competing religions. And it could predict the future, and it requires a priesthood to declare its truth to the ignorant masters, masses. So you have the oracle of science. You know, I, I, I picture this as a uh, as the old, uh, you know, the, the mythical volcano down in somewhere in the Inca, Inca territory in South America, where uh, the time of the month comes around to go up to the volcano and find out what's in store for the village that lives down at the bottom of the volcano. And so the the high priest goes up to the and listens very carefully in the volcano and he comes back down the hill and the people say, what do you say? What do you say? And he's saying, well. Uh, you have to sacrifice two virgins next month or else the the god of volcano will rain down fire and brimstone and <laughs> destroy you all so the search is on for you know for a for a, a virgin to sacrifice and throw into the volcano but you know that's a silly stupid story but this is exactly what scientism is <clears throat> these these, the priesthood goes and, and listens to the oracle of science and comes back with some fantastical story that has no basis in science whatsoever. It's just what they want to do. And they come back to the ignorant people and say, oh, well, don't you know, science says blah, blah, blah. And you're just supposed to accept it. But I think this they're going to have to do this with the sword because, for example, take Christianity alone. They have three main branches, but about 21,000 denominations, then this is just Christianity alone. They mm. can't even agree within its own. What about Islam? What about Judaism and the rest of them? If this were to come down, how would they accept this? Well, it already is being accepted. <clears throat> how often do you hear in the media that 
for instance, just the phrase, scientists have found, science declares, science says. You look for these phrases, you'll see them everywhere. Dogma. It's dogma. Science didn't say anything. Science itself does not speak. There are men that practice some form of science or another, maybe as witchcraft science, but they practice something. And they come up with these statements and they simply say, science says this, you have to do it. That's what Al Al Gore wants us to do right now with with global Global warming. warming. It's become a religious religious thing to them. He's listened to the oracle and he says, listen, I heard the oracle. Don't tell me who I heard. I know who I heard. (laughs) And this is what the oracle said. You all need to give up, you know, fill in the blanks. You need to give up your cars. You need to start riding bikes to work. Uh, you know, you need to quit eating beef and start eating insect protein or whatever, and you need to change your ways. You need to change your whole lifestyle. And it's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. But but people are being, the society is being conditioned to listen to scientists and somehow to elevate them above all other men. You know, just like St. Simon said, they're not better than all other men is the problem. But they're conning people into thinking they are better because Maybe they have a PhD or, you know, they've written books or they gave a, you know, peer reviewed paper. They have a white robe or a title after their name. Uh, I know. So, you know, I, religions are, believe it or not, are buying into this thing like crazy. I've never seen anything like it in my life. And I've, I've had some exposure to uh, the religious community for a very long time. Um, but, um, back in 2014, it's two years ago, there was a conference. It was a global conference. I think it ran in parallel with one of the big UN meetings that was happening at the time. It was called the Interfaith Summit on Climate Change. The Interfaith Summit on Climate Change. Now, everybody attended it. All the religions of the world, including the non-Christian religions as well, Islam, Buddhism, and so on. A press release was issued by the World Council of Churches soon after the meeting was done to their people, but this is what this is what their view of that meeting was. And this is a direct quote. There has never been such a large amount of religious environmental activity in one location in the history of the world. This week will mark a watershed in the history of religion. It will be a time that people remember as the time when the world's faiths declared themselves irrevocably as green faiths. Close quote. Stunning. Shocking. That they would buy into. Now we're talking about, in in the Christian world, we're talking about all the mainline Christian churches. The Catholic Church, Episcopal Church, Presbyterian Church, Church of God, Church of Christ. All the big ones that belong to the National Council of Churches, which belongs to the World Council of Churches, they've all declared themselves now to be green. The Pope even wrote an encyclical on climate yep. change a year and a half ago. And so the Catholic Church is all in. Now, I'll tell you, there's a, a number of conservative Catholics in this country that are hopping mad <laughs> about this whole thing because they see through the scam. And they're wondering what on earth is their church leadership doing? Well, I know many Catholics that really have doubts on this new pope. Absolutely. I think they should. I'm not Catholic, by the way, but I think they should have serious reservations and start really 
really challenging the whole matter. But my whole point of saying that was the religions of the world that we might look back and think, you know, well, they were still kind of based in the Judeo-Christian ethic, at least the Christian religions, but that's all gone. They're, they're following after science now. That, you know, being green means you're accepting and adopting all this global warming nonsense, science says. And, and they're getting behind it. They're teaching it in the pulpit now and, you know, to the in church publications and newsletters and, you know, it's just everywhere, everywhere. We have to take a break to divide both segments, but I want to continue discussing this because I think education has something to do with this. The way their department of indoctrination, as I call it in the United States, technocracy must be being filtered down this way as well. Transhumanism, singularity, the merging of computer and human beings. What's going to happen there? The replacement of, of labor with computers is it true? And this is a question that I hope you can answer on the other side. Is it true that in the future we'll see computers doing our daily chores, which will allow us to have a life with more more pleasures? But anyway, how can people buy technocracy rising and even trilateral observers? Well, the trilaterals over Washington is out of print currently, but there's still a, there, occasionally some used books show up on Amazon. So people can go there and search for Trilatos over Washington if they wanted to see it. But uh, you won't find it in your library, most likely, anymore. Uh, but you can go to technocracy.news, and you will see a link there for my book, Technocracy Rising. It's available for purchase there. I always love to send out a autographed copy to people that buy from me. So having said that, it is available also on Amazon.com. So if you like to buy from Amazon and you just rather get it there, you can. And there's also a Kindle version, an ebook available on uh, Amazon if you like to read on your Kindle. So uh, that's how they do it. And otherwise, uh, technocracy.news is a wonderful resource for people to, to keep up to, to date with what technocracy is doing from around the world. I post articles every day. I curate the news, if you will, to find articles about technocracy that relate to it somehow. And I want people, I want readers to see this and see it with their own eyes. I want them to watch the lips move of these people that are saying these things. And don't take it from me. Don't just take my word that I'm reporting truth accurately. You need to go and, and consider what these people themselves are saying and doing. And it'll open your eyes in a hurry, I'll tell you. It really will. Incidentally, that's how I found you. Somebody shared an article from your website, excellent website, by the way, and it was the the fact that we handed our internet capabilities, ICANN, to a to a, a global company, perhaps the United Nations, and you even said, I believe, that it was it's not surprising that all of a sudden, days after, we saw a bunch of blackouts throughout the United States where major companies lost internet. So who are you going to call now? And by the way, I also like that uh, you autograph the book and above it you say for the sake of liberty. Much more with Patrick Wood when we return Technocracy Rising. This is Mel Fabregas and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com Click on members or subscribe, or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. 
Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, IUSB drive with all our shows, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy. Thank you. 